I've been nominated for membership in the National Geographic Society. Oh my god. You are a meathead. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're taking a trip back to the 1970s. The 70s is what I consider, I guess, my formative years. That's the memories that I have the most from the 70s. We all have a decade where we consider we grew up. I guess the 70s is mine. And it's hard to believe 1971 was 50 years ago. I'm not great in math, but 50 years ago, if I remember correctly, is half a century. Holy cats. But that's how long ago it was. I mean, you can't fight math. 50 years is 50 years. And the reason that I wanted to go back to the 1970s today is because one of the focuses of Storytime has always been what I grew up with. Things that I remember, things that were popular, things that were stupid. But I've never taken an episode to try to describe what the world was like in the 1970s. So that's what I'm going to do today. Now, my plan is to give you some of the things that stick out to me, things that I remember. But I'm also going to try to paint kind of a broad brush picture of the world. Because the world that I grew up in, the world where I was in grade school, where I was watching TV, where I was in high school, that was a very different world than exists now. And I know I've touched on this in other episodes. I've talked about specific stores and specific things and specific activities. Not like I'm not going to now, but I want to try to paint you a picture of the world. It was really different back in the 1970s. I mean, there's big things that are different, and there are little tiny things that are different too. I mean, just one example, McDonald's. McDonald's was everywhere when I was a kid. Now, this is going to sound kind of weird, but you see on the McDonald's signs where they say, billions and billions served? When I was a kid, the McDonald's sign said 10 million served, 20 million served, 30 million served, and so on. I remember wondering if they were ever going to get to a billion. Obviously, they did. But they would change the sign periodically. I remember the menu was so simple. You could go in and get a burger and fries and a drink for less than a buck. McDonald's was a great deal. They didn't have any of these fancy meals. They didn't have McNuggets. Not when I was a kid. And breakfast. Breakfast was a new thing to McDonald's in the 70s. The Egg McMuffin didn't exist until the 1970s. Before then, it wasn't even open for breakfast. You had lunch, you had dinner at McDonald's. Egg McMuffin? What was that? That was a groundbreaking invention for fast food restaurants back in the 1970s. I've talked about telephones in the past. I did a whole episode on telephones. Telephones were big, but the only telephones that we had were either the landline in our house or the payphone on the corner. And when I say payphone on the corner, payphones were everywhere. Nowadays, you can't find a payphone if your life depends on it. But back when I was a kid, there was a payphone on every corner, in every gas station, in every supermarket. There were payphones in the library, in the courthouses. There were payphones in the tax office. There were payphones in the lobby of just about every building. Payphones were everywhere, so you could get a hold of somebody if you needed them. And the payphones all had those rotary dials. Do you remember going to your grandma's house and finding that phone with a rotary dial? That's all there was. I don't remember exactly when we got a touch-tone phone in our house, but it was not in the 1970s. You had to do that slow-motion dial thing, where you put your finger in the hole and spin the wheel around to the stop and then let it go. Yeah, that was the phone system that we dealt with. And there was no 911. There was no 911 back then. If you had an emergency, you dialed O for the operator, and then you asked for an ambulance, you asked for a police officer, but you didn't dial 911 because it wasn't a thing. 
And actually, the operators were there to help you. They actually had live people sitting in phone company central. I'm not even sure where the operators were, but you were always connected to a live person. Imagine that. A live person picking up the phone when you dialed O, and then you would tell that live person what you needed. I keep saying dial O. I dialed O. I dialed zero. It was the zero on the little dial wheel, but I always thought of it as O. O for operator. Made sense to me. But the operators would also help you with other things. If you wanted to make a collect call, we've talked about that. Reversing the charges, that's what a collect call is. That means the person you're calling pays for the call. The operator would set that up for you. And you would do that if you didn't have any money in your pocket. You could go to a payphone, dial the operator, tell the operator you want to make a collect call to so-and-so, and they would dial the number. And then you'd hear the conversation. You'd hear the operator say, Uh, Mr. Smith, I have GamerDude on the line calling collect. Will you accept the charges? Now, collect calls were much more expensive than a regular call, but if you were in a pinch, you would be hopeful that your buddy would accept the call. You could also make person-to-person calls. That way, if you wanted to talk to a specific person, the operator was there to help you do that. I have a gamer dude calling for Mr. Smith, and if Mr. Smith wasn't there, then the call didn't go through. But that was the phone service back then. That's the phone system that we lived with. I grew up in a world where the only portable entertainment device was a transistor radio. That's it. No tablets, no pads, no handheld PDAs, nothing like that. If you wanted to hear music, or the news, or a baseball game, you needed a transistor radio. And if you wanted to keep it private, a little earplug. The earplug only had one, what would be called a bud these days, but it's an earplug. That's what I grew up with. I still call them earplugs. But you'd have one little earplug, and if you were in school trying to listen to the World Series, for instance which, yes, I did try to do, because back then the World Series was actually played in the afternoon. Nowadays, all of the World Series games are night games, but back when I was in school, the World Series actually had afternoon games, and the only way to hear them, because you were in school, was on a transistor radio. And so, yes, a lot of kids and a lot of teachers would sneak their transistor radios into school, have their little earplug, sneak it up through their shirt so the teacher didn't know you were listening to the game, and hope that nothing super exciting happened during class. But at least you could listen. But that was it. That was the only entertainment device we had, a small transistor radio, fit neatly in the coat pocket. So we had transistor radios, we had pay phones, and we had smoking. Smoking was just a fact of life when I was a kid. I looked it up while preparing today's episode. Half the population was still smoking in the 1970s. There were non-smoking sections in restaurants. There were non-smoking sections on planes. But smokers and non-smokers coexisted because smoking was huge, huge. And I mean, look back at some of your movies and your TV shows. Everybody on TV, everybody in the movies smoked. One of the interesting little things that went with smoking, ashtrays. There were ashtrays everywhere. There were ashtrays outside businesses, of course, but everybody had an ashtray on their desk, in their house, out by the barbecue grill. Everybody had ashtrays, and ashtrays were almost like an art form. I find them at auctions. If you go to an auction at an old house, they have some very beautiful decorative ashtrays. They're very nice pieces of decorative art, for lack of a better term. Yes, they served a function, but they looked nice too. You wanted to have a fashionable ashtray in your house, and people did. And it's kind of funny when you think about it. The fashionable ashtrays of the 50s, 60s, and 70s took the place of the spittoons that were everywhere back in the 1800s. If you've ever seen an Old West movie, bars and public places would have a spittoon for people who chewed tobacco. Yes, people smoked back then too, but a lot of people chewed, and all the public places would have spittoons. Until, of course, it became less fashionable to chew and more respectable to smoke. But you find those spittoons at old auctions too. Now you find the ashtrays. 
And I've seen people repurpose those old ashtrays. The ashtray would be on a nice stand. Nowadays, it makes a great planter because it's on a stand. It looks nice. You can put a nice little fern in it. But back in the day, ashtrays on a stand was a fixture in the house. It was a piece of furniture. I remember we had an ashtray in our house. Nobody in my house smoked. But we had an ashtray because my great-grandmother was a smoker. And so my parents had a fancy ashtray. It was actually a seashell that had been mounted in some kind of plastic base. And that was our family ashtray. We used it about once a year when my great-grandmother came to visit, but it was always out because it was just a fixture in the house. The other fixture in some houses, not ours, but in some houses, a fancy lighter. And again, you can see these in old movies and old TV shows, but people would have a fancy lighter on their coffee table, on their desk, on the kitchen counter. Not just one of those little Bic lighters. These were fancy lighters. They were substantial, like you might have a small bust of Abraham Lincoln. The head would flip back and you'd spin the wheel and light the lighter and the flame would come out where his head would be. And then to put the flame out, you'd flip Lincoln's head back. But these were the things that kind of stood out to me as things that were fixtures in houses that have just disappeared. And as long as I'm talking about houses, houses were very different back then. Nowadays, if you watch some of those TV shows where they're talking about redecorating a house or renovating a house, or if you're looking at house hunters, everybody likes to talk about, we need an open concept. The living room flows into the dining room, which flows into the kitchen. There's no walls. Everything is open. You can be cooking in the kitchen, watch the TV in the living room, and talk to the people sitting in the living room, or in the dining room, or wherever. It's just one giant big room. But every house that I knew of in the 70s, the house I grew up in, all of the neighbors' houses, the houses were very compartmentalized. Did I trip over that word? Compartmentalized. Compartmented. Okay, there was a lot of separate rooms. Let's say it that way. Lots of little compartments. But what I'm getting at is, there was a big wall between our living room and our kitchen. Our living room and our dining room kind of flowed together. That was one big room. But there was a doorway separating the dining room from the kitchen. There was a doorway separating the dining room from the family room. Then there was a separate wing of the house, even though it was only a ranch house. I consider it wings. There was the living room wing, which when you walked in the front door was to the right. And the bedroom wing, which when you walked in the front door was to the left. But every home was like this. You had a living room, separate room, kitchen, separate room, bedrooms, down a separate corridor in a different portion of the house, and very small, very small bedrooms. And when I say very small, I mean small, relatively speaking. I mean, the room might be 10 by 10, 10 by 12 tops. Nowadays, you get rooms that are 14 by 16, 14 by 18. And that's because we live in our rooms a lot more than we did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you went into your bedroom to go to sleep at night. You'd go into your bedroom to do your homework, but you'd be sitting on your bed doing your homework. You might have a small desk in there, and it had to be small because there was not a lot of room in the bedroom. But yeah, you'd go into your bedroom, you'd have your little desk, maybe, and you'd have your bed. There was no chairs, there was no TV, there was no phone. We didn't have any of that stuff in our bedrooms. There was no room for it, number one, and number two, it was too damn expensive. TVs were not cheap. For a good portion of my life when I was a kid, we had one TV in the house. That was the 25-inch color console TV I've talked about. That was it. That was the TV. Everybody watched that TV, and whatever Dad was watching, that's what we watched. It was in the 70s that we finally got a little 13-inch black and white TV that Dad set up in the kitchen for my mom. That way she could have TV on while she was preparing dinner or doing whatever kitchen stuff she did. And yes, Mom did the dinner and did the dishes and did the traditional kitchen stuff because that's the way it was when I was a kid. Dad worked, Mom stayed at home, and did the house stuff. So eventually, in the 70s, Mom got a 13-inch black-and-white TV that Dad set up in the kitchen for her. And when I say a black-and-white TV, it was a black-and-white TV because they were cheaper. 
Buying a color TV was an expensive proposition. You could get a black and white TV, which was just a black and white cathode ray tube, relatively cheaply. And with my dad, he would find them at auctions or at garage sales. He wasn't paying bust-out retail for a 13-inch TV, no way. And when I say 13 inches, imagine that for a second. If you have something like a small Chromebook or a large iPad, that's probably 11 inches, maybe you got a 15-incher. Imagine a TV for the entire kitchen that big that you had to watch from across the room. That was the size of the TV in the kitchen. But to us, that was a huge thing. Having two TVs in the house, oh my God. And it was also a little bit of freedom for us kids. Because if dad was watching something in the family room on the 25-inch TV, and there was something else we wanted to see, we would welcome the opportunity to go into the kitchen, turn on that little 13-inch TV, and huddle around it and watch it in black and white. Why? Well, because it was something we wanted to see, and we could see what we wanted to see without having to worry about Dad. Dad could watch his boring newscast, and we could watch reruns of Gilligan's Island. It was great. But that was the way it was for most of the people that I knew. People had one TV in the house. Some people were lucky enough to have two. They might have one in the kitchen. If they had a rec room in the basement, they might have a rec room TV. But for the most part, people had one TV in their houses. The other thing I remember about houses? Wood paneling. I've talked about this before. If you remember, it was season two. I did a whole episode on interior decorating that I grew up with, like wood paneling. We had wood paneling in every room of the house, except the kids' bedrooms. My parents had wood paneling in their bedroom. There was wood paneling in the kitchen. There was wood paneling in the family room. Wood paneling, in case you don't know, it's basically a sheet of plywood with a fake wood veneer on it that makes it look like it's wood, but it's not really wood. I mean, it's wood because it's plywood, but I guess you were trying to capture the look of something like a log cabin, I guess. But the wood paneling was always dark. I mean, they had light-colored wood paneling, but by and large, people bought the dark wood paneling, so every room in the house was dark. I mean, yes, you could turn lights on. Yes, you could open the windows. But when every room is dark brown, it makes for a very dark house. And wood paneling was dark brown. The family room, dark brown. The kitchen, dark brown. Now, in the kitchen, my parents had two walls that were wood paneled. But they also had the trim done in something else that is really specific to the 70s. And that's patterned wallpaper. My parents had this shiny, colorful, orange-yellow flower pattern wallpaper on certain parts of the kitchen to go with the wood paneling. I guess to try to brighten it up a little. And when I say shiny, I mean like aluminum foil shiny. It was like a silver background with orange and yellow flowers on it. And if it sounds hideous, it's only because it was. I mean, I was a kid. I didn't care. But when I visited the house as an adult and I looked at that wallpaper, I would say to myself, of course, okay, there's an interesting choice. I wonder if they'll ever change that. It was a look. It was what we grew up with. We grew up with a lot of things that don't even exist anymore. You look around now, everybody's driving SUVs or crossovers. A lot of families get the minivan. Minivans didn't exist in the 70s. SUVs didn't exist in the 70s. What we had for many years was the traditional family station wagon. Now, big cars were the thing anyway. That's another thing I remember, which I'll get to in a second. But big cars were the way to go. And we had this ginormous family station wagon. Now, if you don't know or you don't remember, all you have to do is look at the movie National Lampoon's Vacation. Clark Griswold's car was a traditional station wagon. That's what we grew up with. Now, I remember our station wagon. It was a Chevrolet Greenbrier. You can look it up. I've seen pictures on the internet, and it looks exactly as I remember it. A station wagon had a big front end where the engine was, a front seat, and it was the bench seat. There were no bucket seats. Bucket seats in a car back then? That was something the imports did. 
American manufacturers had bench seats in the front and bench seats in the back, and you would sit three across. And then in the family station wagon, you had what we called the way back. I don't know what else you would call it. The part in back. We called it the way back. And in the way back is where mom would load the groceries. That's where the dog would go if we were taking a family trip. That's where the luggage would go. And on long trips or night trips, if we wanted to lie down, we could climb from the back seat into the way back and stretch out in the way back. And it was just the right size for kids to stretch out. Seat belts? <laughs> oh, what were those? We didn't use them in the back seat, and we sure didn't use them if we were lying down in the way back. We might have a blanket and a pillow, but no seat belts in the way back. But you got a good nap. We eventually got rid of the family station wagon in the 70s because there was a gas crisis in the 70s, and the price of gas skyrocketed. Now, this may blow your mind a little, but the price of gas skyrocketed from something like 35 or 36 cents a gallon to about 75 cents a gallon. I know, that sounds cute, right? <laughs> oh, 75 cents a gallon? But that was a huge jump, obviously, more than double. I remember the oil embargo. I remember gas lines. I remember them restricting days you could buy gas on. If you had an even number license plate, you could buy on even number days. If you had an odd number license plate, you could buy on odd days. But with the price of gas going sky high, my dad, ever aware of how much things cost and trying to budget things, he knew it was time to get a car that got better gas mileage. Now, we did have two cars. The station wagon was for mom to drive around, do the shopping, haul the kids. My dad had a car to go to work. Now, I don't remember exactly when they got two cars, but I remember one of the first second cars that my dad had was a Volkswagen Bug he bought at an auction. Yes, my dad would buy cars at auctions. It was an estate sale. Somebody was getting rid of an old bug. And that's what my dad bought for his second car so he could commute to work. I don't even remember the year of it. I just remember it had four cylinders and got great gas mileage. And my dad was tickled to have it. But he also made the decision to get rid of the big family station wagon because it was a gas guzzler. I'm sure it was an eight-cylinder engine. And I'm sure it probably got 12 miles to the gallon. My dad decided to replace the station wagon with a Volkswagen bus. Now, the Volkswagen bus was the van that Volkswagen put out. Basically, it was a large refrigerator box on wheels. It had two front seats, bucket seats. It had a middle seat, obviously in the middle, and then it had a three-person seat in the back. Basically, the first minivan. You can find pictures of those Volkswagen buses anywhere online, and they were roomy enough for a family of five. There was room in back of the back seat for luggage if you were going on a trip. There was room for the dog to lie down on the floor. But the original Volkswagen bus was basically a minivan. And the bus had a four-cylinder air-cooled engine. So it was not a fast vehicle, but it was roomy, and you could haul a family of five around in it. And we got that because of the gas crisis. That's one of the things that I remember from the 70s. The gas crisis was a huge thing, and it made a lot of differences in the way we lived, and it made a lot of differences in the way the entire country lived. People started trading in those big vehicles for small vehicles. Ford and Chevy both started making small vehicles. There was a car company called AMC back then that really started the trend. I remember they put out a cool-looking car. I thought it was a cool-looking car anyway. The Gremlin. I thought the Gremlin was a cool-looking car, and I was hoping we'd get one someday. We didn't, but I always thought it was cool. But when people started buying the Gremlin, Ford and Chevy put out their own small cars. Ford put out the Pinto. Chevy put out the Vega. Little tiny four-cylinder cars, better on gas. And people started buying small cars. That's when Toyota came over, the Toyota Corolla. That's when Nissan came over, the Nissan Sentra. Actually, Nissan was Datsun back then. But that's when small cars started making inroads in the U.S. I mean, before the 70s, it was those big eight-cylinder Cadillac-type cars. You'd have the Plymouth Fury. 
You'd have the Buick Regal. Oldsmobile was a big name. Pontiac was a big name. And they all had big cars. And then gas got expensive in the 70s. And people started buying small cars. Of course, the small cars did have their problems. Go ahead and look up the Ford Pinto. There was a little problem with the manufacturing. They actually put the gas tank in in a bad spot so that if you hit a Ford Pinto from behind at just the right speed, it would blow up. Yeah, there were all kinds of lawsuits about that. But at least it was fuel efficient. As usual, I've barely scratched the surface of what I wanted to talk about about the 70s. I get going and I go off on these tangents, and then one story reminds me of another story, and then another one, and I do my best to try to squeeze it all in. But the way I look at it, now I've got enough for another episode. So we'll talk about the 70s again, we'll talk about the 80s, we'll talk about the 90s. It's funny, the 90s, 1991 was 30 years ago. When somebody says to me these days, oh yeah, back in the 90s, I'm thinking, ah, five or six years. 1991 was 30 years ago. Holy cats. I'm getting old. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate your support more than I can ever say. You guys take care of yourselves. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you.